This episode of Stories with Shrinks focuses on characters from the Harry Potter universe. Jen and I would like you to know that we do not support J.K. Rowling's comments about the transgender community, and that this episode is dedicated to everyone who has been brought together by this story, not its author. Welcome to Stories with Shrinks, a podcast where we over-psychoanalyze characters from our favorite movies, TVs, and medias. My name is Jennifer, pronouns she, her, hers, and Hufflepuff. And I'm Tyler, my pronouns are he, his, him, and I'm a Ravenclaw. And if you can't figure it out by now, we are talking about Harry Potter this time. And we are specifically going to be picking two characters that are close and near dear to us and doing what therapists do best, case conceptualizing them and trying to figure out the best way to help them solve their goals in a therapeutic setting. But first, a question for Tyler. I found two questions that would be really fun to answer, but I'll just throw one at you. What Quidditch position would you play and why? I'm a keeper. You're a keeper? <laughs> <laughs> um, I would choose to play a keeper because goalie is what I played when I played soccer when I was really, really little. Mm -hmm. uh, and... That just seems like the most non-lethal position in Quidditch. Everybody right. else is getting bludgers beat at them. And yeah, no, uh, a keeper for sure. Be out of the action a little bit. Hmm. What about you? Um, I guess the real answer to the specific question would be a keeper. I, I enjoyed playing goalie in PE. That was the closest I ever got to a sport growing up was physical education in the classroom. My real life answer would be, I'm in the stands rooting them on. <laughs> <laughs> That would also be more accurate for me. Right. But if I had to pick one keeper. A keeper. Also just because it's fun to say I'm a keeper. So we have a couple of new clients this week. And I'm going to start us off since you started us off last time. And I am going to be talking about Remus John Lupin, who was to Gryffindor. Sadly departed now. But I specifically chose around Harry's sixth year in Hogwarts or book six, uh, if we're going to be looking at just the books or the movies. And I took a combination of stuff from the books and the movies to sort of make this fully fledged human version of Lupin instead of just a character in a book. I decided to pick Lupin in this time period because he's going through a really tough struggle. The main thing that he is struggling with is his love for Tonks. He feels like he's not a good fit for her and he is carrying a lot of shame and guilt around that and around some other parts of his life. And so I figured if Lupin was coming into therapy at any point in his life, this would be the point that he would. I'm going to read off the case conceptualization I have of Lupin and then talk a little bit about how I pieced that together and talk about a little bit what I think his treatment process would look like and what we would do with that. So Remus Lupin is a 36-year-old cisgender heterosexual man who is white and British, currently residing in the United Kingdom. Mr. Lupin is single, unemployed, formerly a professor, and is lycanthropic, having been infected with the disease as a child. He has come to therapy to explore his feelings of shame and guilt related to his lycanthropy and how those emotions are currently acting as barriers to the beginning of a romantic relationship. At the time of intake, the client was reserved when speaking and tended to mask his emotions, preferring to speak of things in a logical manner. When discussing the client's presenting issue, he described himself as feeling conflicted because he wants to be partnered with a woman who has expressed romantic interest in him, but he feels as though he is unworthy of her and unlovable. 
The client's previous coping for this issue has been avoidance, to the point of taking possibly dangerous work in faraway places so that he will be physically unable to communicate with the woman he is interested in. The client does not currently have insight into how his shame and guilt over being a lycanthrope are impacting his, this issue of his life. The clinician believes that this internalized self-loathing brought on by the client's upbringing and the societal stigma of lycanthropy is the major barrier that the client is facing in moving forward with this potential romantic relationship. All that to say, how I think this client would show up in therapy is he would show up as a guy, which guys are taught most of our lives to reserve our emotions, keep them locked away, keep them inside. If you're feeling happy or if you're feeling angry, you're allowed to express those two, but anything else you're not really allowed to express. And so I figured that if he came into therapy for the first time, never having been in therapy before for the first 36 years of his life, carrying all this shame and guilt, probably isn't going to be very open with me at the very beginning in a first session. This sort of case conceptualization stuff typically happens during a first session, during what we would call intake and assessment. Mm -hmm. So he is going to be coming in in that way. And you could tell from the way that I wrote that what I really think his core issue here is his lycanthropy, the fact that he's a werewolf. Mm -hmm. That is going to be the big thing we're going to be working on in therapy. I don't know if he is going to be so open to that if I was that open with him. So sometimes in therapy, a little bit of a peek behind the curtain is that we're kind of like magicians where with one hand, we'll be doing one thing and be like, yes, we're going to talk about your romantic relationship. But with the other, we're going to be doing something completely different and doing the actual thing that we want to work on, which is his lycanthropy to say like, oh, so you're wanting to be with this woman, but you can't. Can you tell me about why? Uh, interestingly enough, in the source material, we get a quote about why he thinks that he's not a good fit for Tonks and it's that he's too old too poor and too dangerous. Mm -hmm. And so if he told me that as his therapist, I'd ask, me, I'd ask him to go through those with me and say, okay, so tell me about too old. What do you mean by too old? How much older than her are you? How is that really impacting things? Is age really an important factor in a romantic relationship? Age sometimes, is just a number. <laughs> sometimes yes, sometimes no. I would argue that maturity level is probably more mm -hmm. indicative of a successful relationship, but that is my opinion. Then I would go on to say, okay, well, what do you mean about too poor? And he would probably go, well, I'm unemployed. And I would say, okay, well, we can talk about that as well. Talk about some employment resources that we can get him plugged into or an unemployment resource says he was a professor and now he's not. Maybe talk about the loss of that job, what was going on there. Spoiler alert, the reason he lost his job is because he's a werewolf. So that's going to play back into this too. And then asking about too dangerous. So too dangerous is 100% about him being a werewolf. Mm -hmm. So we would eventually get to the point that I want to talk about, which is, hey, you've got this disease. And if we're not talking about a magical fantasy world, this would be like talking about a client with, hey, you've got this disability, whether it's mm -hmm. visible or invisible, and you've got this thing that is really, really holding you back. How can we talk about that in an open way? How can we release some of the shame and the stigma around it? And how can we start empowering you to the point where you feel like you're deserving of love and deserving mm -hmm. of worth? So that kind of leads into what were my goals for working with this client? So I said a few. They are in clinical words, so I will describe the jargon as I get through it. So that way, if you have no idea what any of this means, you can at least kind of know what's going on a little bit. Did you take on a specific therapeutic approach while writing your goals? I approached him using the approaches that I normally work with, mm -hmm. which are acceptance and commitment therapy and narrative therapy with a little bit of feminist thrown in for flavor. <laughs> The first thing that I put as a goal was just increase clients' perceived self-worth related to love and worthiness. 
That's the main goal. That's the goal he came in for. Mm -hmm. He gets to set that goal. That is his priority, and that's what we're going to work on. We're going to talk about that every week, and mm -hmm. we're going to work on that every week. Sometimes that's going to look like, hey, I want you to take a journal, and every day this week, I want you to write down one thing you like about yourself. Yeah whether that's external or internal, I, it doesn't really much matter to me. I just want him to start saying nice things about himself, touching into that idea of self-love and self-worthiness because that is really what's holding him back here. It's not mm -hmm. about whether he's actually worthy of love from Tonks or not. Tonks loves him already. Yeah. It's about him accepting that love. So that's where we kind of start with that. Second one, this is very narrative. Explore clients' narrative of lycanthropy, including the origins of shame and guilt. So I would want to know what it means to him to be a werewolf. That's really what that means in, in the simplest terms. Like, hey, what does it mean to you to have this thing that you've been living with since you were a kid? Mm -hmm. This thing that was actually, from what I could tell from my research, I don't think he'd share this with me right away. But what we know about Lupin's lycanthropy is that he got it as a punishment from his dad talking crap about werewolves. Then Fenrir Greyback heard that and went and infected his son. So there's this whole revenge plot, this stuff that's really tied up in there. And then if you look into sort of the canon of what happened to Lupin after that, his childhood was super traumatic because of it. His parents would lock him in a steel room every night that there was a full moon and he wouldn't be allowed to leave. And then he'd transform and he'd you know mess up the room. Mm -hmm. Then once he got to a certain age, he was able to break out of the room. And the other thing that's really important is that in Harry Potter, there's something that can help people who are werewolves manage that a little bit more called the Wolfsbane Potion. What I found out in researching this is that the Wolfsbane Potion wasn't invented until much later in Lupin's life. Mm -hmm. So he was going through his life without any sort of help in this thing where he would just once a month turn into this raging beast. His family was not super accepting of it. He himself grew to not be very accepting of it. And there's this huge societal stigma in the wizarding society of what it means to be a werewolf. And all those things combined into this idea of being a werewolf is bad. Mm -hmm. And I want to know specifically for him what that bad means. How bad is it? What is, what's the flavor of bad? Because there's not always just bad. There's, you know, it's horrible. It makes me feel worthless. It makes me feel like I don't deserve things. What is he missing there? And then to start looking at that and go, okay, so you've got this thing that you're dealing with. It's a really tough, horrible thing to be living with 100%. But now there is a thing that you can take every month to help you retain your mind while you're in this werewolf form. You have access to this potion. Mm -hmm. You have access to resources. You don't have to be alone in this. Start building down that shame and that guilt that's related to it. I mean, I can even see how... If you look at like modern day medicine, the second there is a medication for something, there is a language of there's enough people who deal with this too, that you're not alone in that. There is a medication for this. There is somebody out there in the world who's thinking about you enough to create a medication for it. Yeah. And that's a big argument for diagnosis in our mm -hmm. line of work because I'm not a huge fan of diagnosing right away. For some people, you have to because of insurance purposes. Yep. Uh, others like the label and like being able to tell their client, hey, look, you're not alone in this. And that's a big part of it. 
to say like, hey, you're not the only person who has ever been diagnosed with major depression or Mm -hmm. panic disorder or whatever it might be. There's a name for this, which means we know what to do with it. Like I said, I've personally got my own little hangups with it. It's not necessarily that I don't like diagnosing. It's that I want that to be a conversation between me and my clients as to say, Mm -hmm. does this fit for you outside of just being able to be like, hey, I'm your therapist. Here's a label. Boom. I want them to have their say in it too. Mm -hmm. You know, personally, when that even conversation comes up, I know some practices take on that. We talk about diagnosing. I know personally, I will talk about the diagnosing themes with my client and say, you know, it really does sound like you're dealing with anxiety or depression, but I never actually get out the, okay, here is your diagnosis on paper conversation with them. Because to me, the diagnosis doesn't matter in that sense, unless for a specific client, it does matter. But I'm just like, hey, we're dealing with anxiety because I try to externalize what they're going through as much as possible. Yeah. And the same thing with my clients. I tell them anxiety and depression are normal emotions. Mm -hmm. Something that I've said to many, many a client is that the statistics for depression are that over your lifetime, 75% of people will have an episode of depression. That is normal then. Turns out that's normal because 75% is the vast majority of people. All that to say that depression and anxiety are just feelings like any other feelings. Mm -hmm. They're feelings that suck, but they're feelings. (laughs) And so then the next one I have is increasing the client's insight of his narrative's impacts on his present life. Mm -hmm. So right now, Lupin is not very much aware of how much the whole being a werewolf thing is dragging him down. I think that he does end up getting there. Mm -hmm within the stories of the books. And I think Tonks is a big help in that. But in this moment as his therapist would just be like, hey, I want you to realize that your thoughts about yourself due to being a werewolf are the parts that are sort of drawing you back right now. And I'd also ask him something funny that I just thought about is that I'd also ask him, which language do you prefer? Do you prefer lycanthrope or do you prefer werewolf? Yeah. Because werewolf is technically a colloquialism, like slang term. Hmm. Lycanthropy is the name of the disease. So it's super interesting to be like, so what do you prefer? And to see what he would say to that. I have no idea. I think it would Uh, even say like how he's been treated with the narrative. Are you this clinical disease? Are you this common issue that arises in the wizarding world? What is your relationship even to that? Number four is decrease negative self-talk. So kind of Mm -hmm. what we were talking about in the first one with wanting to raise his self-worth and his self-love is Mm -hmm. that a lot of us do this. I've been guilty of this is that we talk bad about ourselves or we make self-deprecating jokes about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And it's fine at a certain level. Like if that's something that helps you cope, awesome. But also it's super not great for your self-worth and your self-esteem. We have lots of research backing that up that says the more that you do those things, the lower your self-worth and your self-esteem go. So I'd want to just call him out on that and be like, hey, you're calling yourself too old, too poor, and too dangerous. First of all, you're 36, bud. You're not too old. <laughs> too poor is relative. Mm-hmm. And people can love you whether you have money or not. Can you love yourself whether you have money or not? That's a question that I want to ask him. It'd be interesting within the wizarding world because they kind of explain that they use gold and that they kind of have that set standard of economy. But what's the standard of rich versus poor? And you also kind of see it with the pure bloodlines having more wealth versus sometimes not. But then also just being male and having that stereotype of being the provider and the stability. And then what does that mean to him when you financially can't do that and then physically at times cannot provide? If anything, 
it's the opposite. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I don't have it listed on the goals here, but since he's a dude, we would be talking about that sort of, what <laughs> yeah. does it mean to you to be a man? Mm-hmm. Does it mean that you're the breadwinner? Does it mean that you're the provider? Would it be okay for you to not have a job and for your partner to be an aura who works for the ministry, who has a well-paying job that's dangerous, so she probably gets paid a lot? Yep. I talk about that with clients a lot, whether they're coming to me with gender identity issues or not. You know, what does it mean to you to identify as a masculine person or as a feminine person? How does that energy show up for you? And how does that relate to the other stuff that we've been talking about, especially with men, because it's a huge deal. Mm -hmm. Quote unquote, being a man in the eyes of society is a very unhealthy and toxic thing. And that's changing, but it's still there. And so to talk about that and be like, okay, so this is something you grew up understanding and believing. Does that mean it's true? Mm-hmm. And then too dangerous, again, going back to that lycanthropy stuff. of It's okay to have this thing and live with it and also not beat yourself up about it. So then moving on to number five, it would be decreasing behaviors of avoidance related to potential romantic partner. And that would be going along with the self-worth stuff. The avoidance part might be okay while he's working on himself a little bit here. Mm-hmm. That's actually okay. But avoidance in itself is a huge symptom of things like anxiety and how much you believe in your self-efficacy or your ability to do things. So the fact that he, in the books, takes these dangerous spy missions for the Order of the Phoenix, where he's living with other werewolves and trying Mm -hmm. to recruit them to Dumbledore's side so that he can be away from Tonks. That is the main goal, is to say, okay, we can still do those missions because those are important missions. Mm -hmm. But also maybe the reasoning shouldn't be because you're trying to avoid talking to somebody you actually are interested in. Mm -hmm. Maybe point out the absurdity of that a little bit too. I use a lot of humor in session. I would probably be like, dude, it's really, really funny that you keep going on these really dangerous expeditions just so you can't talk to somebody. Yeah. Because that is so much more dangerous than being a spy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, you know, talking to a girl, whoo, that is scary work. I mean, talking to girls is scary. (laughs) So yeah, those are the exact kind of jokes I would be making with him too. Mm-hmm. And just to be like, hey, this is a little absurd. Maybe we can just live in the absurdity of this a little bit and kind of be like, you're right. This isn't the most logical thing that I'm doing right now. <laughs> and then the last thing I put was increased client self-efficacy in romantic relationships. Mm-hmm. I also don't think that Lupin thinks he's probably very good as a partner. Mm-hmm. I don't think that he thinks he could be of service to anyone in a partnership. That's probably also a barrier that he's working with here. So we would talk about all this stuff and explore all this stuff. I would actually really love to have him as a client. I think it would be really, really great. That's the end of my conceptualization Mm -hmm. of him. But something I think that's worth mentioning is that it's been really widely publicized by the author of these books that lycanthropy is a metaphor for the HIV AIDS Mm -hmm. pandemic in the 80s. I think it's important to state that and Mm -hmm. to also be very aware of that, that those stigmas in our world exist. There is a viral infection that people are living with day to day and are trying to navigate with Mm -hmm. all the same stigma of you have this, that means you're an unclean person. It means you're an unworthy person just because this one thing happened and you have this viral infection. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, even with all the support through the generations and all the advocacy work and all of the communication about what it means and what are the facts and what aren't facts, what are misconceptions, there is still the stigma of it. And I think nowadays we're in a generation where it's not talked about much anymore. So the misconceptions and the stigma is actually on the rise again because there was, it's okay, you're not any less of a person, you're just dealing with this disease, this viral infection. But then we kind of stopped the conversation after that. 
and now there's studies that are showing it's back on the rise of these stigmas because we're not talking about it anymore. And I think a part of that is that there have been medical interventions that have been created mm-hmm. that now make it a much less lethal viral infection, which helps a lot. And it's helped a mm-hmm. lot of people really live a lot longer lives and live lives that are more fulfilling mm-hmm. and better quality. And it has now led to the conversation quieting about it, which mm-hmm. also leads to that stigma being back on the rise. Mm-hmm. That being said, while at least we're talking about this topic, just if you are a sexually active person, go get tested. Yeah. Hey, while we're talking about it, <laughs> please go get tested. It's the healthy thing to do. It's the thing to do where you can be sure that you're mm-hmm. not passing along anything that you wouldn't want to pass along to another person and protecting you yourself. Out. Yeah. And protecting yourself medically in the long run too. So there is no stigma in getting tested, even if you don't have any history and this is your first time, there's no stigma of just kind of making it a standard of practice. Exactly. So that's my Mm -hmm. little spiel on that. I also just wanted to say that I had so much fun researching him. Lupin is my favorite character in the series by far. And the love story between him and Tonks is probably one of my favorite stories in this whole series. So I was so excited to do this. And you can probably tell biased that I chose this time in his life to look at because, well, this is the part that I like. I do think that he could have used some therapy to help get over some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. I distinctly remember I was sitting in a laundromat waiting for my laundry to be done and I was reading the seventh book. And I was having an outwardly emotional reaction to one of the passages and one of the other patrons of the laundromat came over just to look over my shoulder to see what I was reading saw it was Harry Potter, saw it was the seventh book, smiled and nodded and walked away. Because <laughs> he's like, I get it. He <laughs> <laughs> was like, that is correct. That is right. the correct reaction to be having right now. That is a normal reaction to Harry Potter. Yeah, I just absolutely love this character. He's my favorite Defense Against the Dark Arts professor by far. Mm-hmm. He's also a very empathic person and a very kind and loving person. Out of the Marauders, he's the one who's like least of a bully. So I do like that too. But he also doesn't tell off his friends. I found that out during this mm-hmm. researching and was like, oh, all right, that's fine, bro. All right. But I did like researching this and finding out more about his life and more about what he went through. And it's pretty tragic. I feel like he could really use someone to talk to. So that's why I wanted to go through this. So if Remus Lupin, if you're out there and you're listening to this, please, uh, I would love to have you as a client. (laughs) So I know for you, you grew up reading Harry Potter. Like you grew up with the stories. I found them as an adult after high school. How was it for you researching this character now as an adult, as a profession in the mental health world versus reading the character growing up with him? So I grew up reading the books. I learned to read reading the books. Mm -hmm. Uh, Started with my aunt and I would a chapter a night read them together and she would do voices. And that probably led to my love of doing silly voices and things. And so that's kind of how my introduction to this whole series was. And then eventually I took over reading them for myself when they got to be about as thick as a dictionary. And Lupin was always a character I idolized. I think Lupin is the character that I would want to be in mm-hmm. this world. He is smart. He is brave. He is kind. He, <laughs> I just have the, the help. The quote yep. <laughs> he was smart. He was kind. He was important. I mean, he's one of the true professors that 
you know, always genuinely cares, even just by carrying chocolate on him of just like, no, this will make you feel better. Like, I'm here to help you. Yeah, and we see it through the lens of Harry because we Mm -hmm. see all the books through the lens of Harry. But I think you can kind of tell that with all of his students, he's just a very kind person. And especially, I'm talking specifically the movies because you get to see more of the act of it. But when he's teaching about uh, Ridiculous, the spell. Yeah, the Bogart sequence is so good. But how he actually looks and interacts when he's talking to them about their fears and like giving them the courage to face their fears a hundred percent and even like i i yeah the bogart sequence is real good i just have that in my head now i'm just like when (laughs) when snape is what walks out of the closet and he dresses and neville dresses him up in his grandma's clothes yeah it's it's real good it's it's real good and yeah and then the fact that within that sequence is he's willing to like sort of take the bullet for harry when harry summons a dementor out of that closet and he Mm -hmm. stands in front of it and it turns into a moon Mm-hmm. And I think that, again, is a pretty deep, deep cut into how he's feeling about this lycanthropy. He's ashamed his and afraid. fear. Yeah. Overall, he's a very complex character, but he is the kind of person that I would want to be. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of cool growing up. And then as a professional looking at him now is to kind of go, yeah, he's also got some of the same issues that I've got. So it also makes sense. <laughs> hey, not that I'm living with anything as debilitating as lycanthropy or Mm -hmm. as the metaphor goes HIV slash AIDS but I understand what it's like to be somebody who doesn't think that they're worthy of love I understand Mm -hmm. what it's like to be somebody who's ashamed of a part of themselves who has negative self-talk and all this other stuff I did not mean to get this real but uh Mm -hmm. here we are (laughs) so looking at him from a professional experience I was like I would love to have him as a client mostly because we could we could both really really grow from this situation Mm -hmm. and I've walked that path already a little bit which is something that we say over and over in the field is that you can only take people as far as you've gone i feel like i could really take lupin a few miles down the road because i've done that work for myself very cool well thank you for your case conceptualization and all of this um we're gonna take a short break and then we'll be back with another fun character to go over Welcome back, everyone, to Stories with Shrinks. Before we get going on our next client that we're going to talk about today, I have another little get-to-know-you question for Jen and I to answer. So, Jen, the question I have for you is, if you could have access to any Harry Potter spell, just one, which one would you want? That is a great question. That's why I asked it. Okay, my first thought was I want one of the forbidden ones, but I don't feel like that's the correct answer. (laughs) I mean, if you want to kill, torture, or control somebody, that's your business. Right? I guess. Um, and now my, my catalog of all the Harry Potter spells are now leaving my brain as well. Well, you don't have to know the name. I'm not going to judge you for that. That's the internet's <laughs> job. That's the, okay, that's their job in the comments below. Mm-hmm. I guess when Guardian Leviosa, because then I can just be lazy all the time and have things float over to me and really get to mess with people as well. I can have still a little bit of sneaky fun. If there's ever a troll in my bathroom, I can defend myself. So that's helpful. So I guess I'll go with that because I feel like you could also use that to do a lot of the other spells. Like I could have something float over to a light switch and turn it on and off. I could float something over someone's head and drop it on their head and then disarm them or stupefy them. Though the spell that Mrs. Weasley uses to destroy Bellatrix in the 
movie. I'm not sure if it's the same one in the books, just because my my knowledge that there's. I'm pretty sure in the books it's the Killing Curse. I'm yeah. pretty sure in the books it's Avada Kedavra. Yeah, but I think in the movie it's. I know in the movie it's different. She kind of oh, yeah. gets in the movie, shrunk in and then explodes. In the movie, it's the not my daughter, you bitch spell. That one's a fun one. But I, I'm going to go with the classic uh, floating. It's Leviosa. So my answer to this is Accio, which is the summoning spell, which is okay. uh, things fly across the room to you because I'm lazy and also because I lose <laughs> things a lot. So that's answer number one. I had a backup answer. My backup answer is whatever spell Mrs. Weasley uses to make the dishes do themselves. Yeah. I hate doing dishes and that would be beautiful that would be perfect if i could have one spell i'd want that one just do it all just do the, the dishes cleaning spell <laughs> i know i'm fine cleaning the house it's specifically the dishes yes. that i have issue with so i would love to just be like yeah dishes do yourselves i'll go vacuum and mop and do laundry i don't care but dishes is, is that the home ex class in hogwarts is the using the spells around the house <laughs> home spells economics. for home use <laughs> Or is that just like them figuring out as like, oh, if you combine this one and this one that does the dishes for you? (laughs) That's a good question. How do you automate dishes? Because the classes you see, I'm assuming they're spells 101 where they kind of go through a textbook and learn the spells. Yeah. But I'm wondering how much is like elementary school versus like what do you learn in high school? Like what what is spells 103 versus or the the seventh year where no one got an education yeah. and <laughs> what, do, what, what does miss? seven years charms look the seven year charms look like or is it the dishwashing spell is it that complicated <laughs> you're about to go off into the real world and there's no college so <laughs> here's a spell that can knit things here's a spell that can do the dishes right. okay so that's the answer so now we'll hand it off to you tell us about your client So the client that came in to my office this week was Luna Lovegood, and I have her placed after the original story arc of her in the books and the movies. So in my in my office, I have a an older Luna who is roughly in her late late twenties, probably like twenty nine years old at this point. Female, cisgender, female presenting, witch and British, originally from Great Britain, and she is uh, coming back from a career. exploring as a magic zoologist and naturalist and in my universe she's coming back because her best friend Ginny is pretty much throwing a baby shower and uh, she's coming back to her hometown for the first time in a long time and kind of stepping back into that classic adulthood role and kind of seeing her friends take on that next level of their relationships and she also recently i'm going to pull out my notes now met someone on her adventures rolf scalamander am i pronouncing that last name right rolf scamander Scamander. son of newt scamander aka ready ready admin eddie redmain that's how you actually say that (laughs) so recently met ralph um and piggybacking off of you a little bit it seems like love relationships in the harry potter world might be a little bit complicated you know she was speaking to her friend Ginny and realized she has this new guy in her life but she's still really struggling letting people in and really trusting people her main reason coming in actually is we're going to talk about grief a lot in her story arc 
again, Luna is a 29-year-old female, female presenting cisgender woman, coming in presenting with uh, sleep problems, which is canon to her story that she sleepwalks that is discussed in at least the movies. Having issues, so issues of sleep disturbance, reported difficulties letting others in and struggling with her grief narrative, finding herself much more emotional now that she's back at home and kind of back into those initial triggers and settings. She comes in with a very similar look that we know her very much as uh, long, shockingly whitish blonde hair, silvery eyes, very dreamy and distracted still. Her speech is very slower and very movement indistinct and sits very still in the office with a very flat affect at times, but has a very sing-songing yet sad quality to her voice. She has difficulty describing her feeling states, but is very much aware of her feelings and can can talk about feelings and talk about emotions and empathy, but at times has trouble really communicating what she's going through. Throughout our initial conversation, you can very much tell that she is wise and old soul through all of it and very empathetic. She's very insightful regarding feelings, like I said, but has difficulty letting that guard down and letting others in. So again, talking about having very similar symptoms and that her friend Jenny really thought it would be helpful to come in and kind of talk to somebody about what's going on in her life currently and then everything she went through. She was a year younger than the rest of her friends going through what they went through in school. And so for Harry, who might have been 18 turning 19 at the time, she was going through these things at 16 turning 17 and then 17 turning 18. And then all her friends left. And she still technically had a year of school left. And in the books and in the movies, she is definitely an outcast at times. She doesn't have a lot of close emotional friends and finds solace with the original seven, or is considered a part of the original seven, I should say, of the characters. So she kind of is very factual at first while sitting with me, talking about how after the battle, she saw a lot of her friends move on and had trouble like connecting with others because of everything she had gone through growing up and everything she'd gone through during the Battle of Hogwarts. You know, it's really hard to be considered one of the famous people of the battle and yet not Harry, struggling with where she fit into all of it. You know, she gets everyone's attention, but how do you really know how to handle that and how you want to handle that? And upon leaving school, she begins her work in a quieter place. And I think that she's always had a connection with the animals, uh, given that her father explored and wrote about exotic animals. And I feel like she went into that that field because it allowed her to kind of find more solace in herself and into the things she did understand. So traveling to discover these new creatures and really start to understand the world around her. And kind of the main quotes that she's coming in with is, you know, I can't lose more people. She lost a lot of her friends at Hogwarts. She's lost her mom and she's already lost so much. So now that there's this guy in her life, can you let someone in and not lose them? And again, upon coming home and kind of being re-triggered by seeing everyone again and being back with her dad, all the increased symptoms. And she, most reportedly finding it, having difficulties expressing emotions, having possible like PTSD-like triggers and symptoms, being around everyone again, increased sleep disturbances. And a big one for her is maybe even processing that grief for the first time of all of it. So that's a very quick and less written out conceptualization. I did more loose notes um, conceptualizing than Tyler did. I used um, a general psychosocial assessment to conceptualize her. And something that I kind of like to focus on also is like what was her developmental history? What was her attachment history and her abuse history? And she is kind of 
gone through a lot in a very short time frame. I kind of put together a quick timeline and genogram, and this is something I would have done with the client as well in those early assessment phases. And something I like to do is kind of construct one, a genogram, so a family mapping and looking at family patterns of communication and narratives, looking at her timeline. And when I go into like the goals and interventions, you'll see this again, but just to give a little respect to Luna's history per se. So her mom dies at nine years old. So she had a very, I could imagine, strong connection with mom up to then, a very strong attachment. And I have a feeling dad was very disconnected through those early years, writing and being a reporter and doing his adventures, but probably had a very strong connection and secure attachment with mom, who was also probably very dotty and very whimsical, just like Luna is in her own magic way. So mom dies, and then shortly after, she gets a letter from Hogwarts, gets whisked away. So this is year two in the Harry Potter universe in year one for Luna. If she's already kind of befriending Ginny at this point, her best friend gets kidnapped by a ghost in a diary and almost dies while other people around her are getting petrified. So like, quick introduction to how school's gonna be for her. And that school is dangerous for children. That school is very dangerous for students. But we don't actually really meet Luna until uh, year four in the Harry Potter canon. And then, so shortly after, all that fun stuff goes down with the Dumbledore's army and really starting to take a stance. But what I find so interesting about Luna is the first time you really see her, she talks about grief. I would say some of her first big moments with Harry is empathizing about their grief narratives and the fact that she saw her mom die and that other people don't really understand her and that she's kind of different. But in her time frame, she is held prisoner. So she's kidnapped, held prisoner, tortured, released in the process, sees her friend Dobby die, and then joins the Battle of Hogwarts, sees a lot of her friends die, then her friends who are alive leave Hogwarts, and then she has technically another year in school before she starts her career. So a lot of grief narratives happening for poor Luna here. So when working on what kind of goals I would work with with her, I took a very narrative internal family systems or parts work perspective when working with clients. So the first thing I would really want to do is have her have a space that feels safe to talk about her story in her narrative. When doing some research about Luna, a lot of other people have different perspectives of what she's currently dealing with within her life. Some analyses of Luna talk about the fact that she may be or does show a lot of signs of being on the spectrum and she has kind of classically gotten labeled and diagnosed within the research as possibly having Asperger's disorder. However, if we take a DSM-5 analysis of this as where we are now, I don't think she technically qualifies anymore, in my opinion, for autistic spectrum disorders. I think she would have been considered very high-functioning Asperger's and she would have lost the diagnosis if that is what's going on. But I tend to take a more trauma narrative approach that given what she's gone through in her life and given the culture she was raised in, a lot of her personality makes sense. And so it's kind of trying to 
take a less diagnosed analysis of what's happening and more mm -hmm. of a grief narrative analysis of what's happening. So our first main goal would be to create a, a space for her to tell the story because even if she shows some of the traits of being on the spectrum, which she does in a lot of different ways, it would be really important for her to feel safe to talk about her feelings and talk about her emotions with a stranger and making sure that she felt safe to tell the story, which can be so difficult when you've experienced such trauma. A grief narrative alone is difficult to share, let alone a abuse narrative that she went through and then a war narrative. Those are three very thick things to have to map out, making sure she feels safe to do so. And then mapping out the problem, separating her from the problem themselves. So she commonly kind of describes herself as different and unique and it's okay, you're just the same as I am. But really getting her to see that like these things happen to you and you've been labeled by a lot of your peers because of it. And letting her really take ownership in what has happened and not make it a negative narrative that she carries. So we'd be using a lot of externalizing languages, personifying the problem, asking questions in the sense of what is your grief narrative? What was it like to lose your mom at such a young age? And then only really having a year with your dad as your primary caregiver before going off to school and trying to navigate grieving the loss of a parent, which in so many ways you never get over and now being on your own and navigating school and school in a very dangerous time to go to Hogwarts. Um, and she's also not shy to the fact that bad things happen. You see that a lot in the sense of, you know, we stand by you and our family understands Harry and like where you know that Voldemort's back. She's not one to say like, oh no, everything's fine. She's like, no, bad things happen. Bad things can happen. So again, really identifying what her grief narrative is, looking at her attachment mm -hmm. styles, and then really starting to dive in and create a narrative for her different parts. Mm -hmm. So that part of her that remembers mom, that part of her who lost mom, that part of her who had to really almost raise her dad. And sometimes you kind of get that sense that she is a really good caretaker of her dad. You kind of see that at the wedding where she's like, okay, come on, dad. Harry doesn't want to talk to us right now. Like she's very cued in to others and kind of guides her dad out of there. So really starting to identify what those parts are, what parts are her protective parts, what parts are her defensives. If you use very classical parts work, it's like the manager, the firefighter. But I allow for a little bit more freedom with my parts work language with clients. So like, how do you identify your parts? What part of this is you? You know, even allowing her to invite some of the creatures she loves into those parts work language. So like, you know, if there's a, a part of her that it, she can really identify and kind of match with some of the creatures that she loves, allowing her to build that narrative off of that. And then we would want to start developing a new relationship with the problem and thickening that alternative story. So as we have this initial grief story arc, you know, let's say of guilt or shame about mom dying or if she has any like lasting feelings about dad not being around or dad being involved or how her role in all of that went down really starting to help her construct a narrative that it wasn't her fault that there was nothing she could do to like help or save mom if that was the case allowing her to really understand why people may or may not have approached her the same way because, you know, when you have a parent die, sometimes you get a label on your forehead that everyone else reads that says, stay away from me. My parent died and they don't know how to interact with you. And helping her understand that she is perfectly fine just being who she is and that is a lovable person. It's a person that these things that happened to her were not fair and she did not cause them. Because I could imagine 
after the choices that led up to her possibly getting kidnapped and tortured could feel very much like, I chose this path. This is my fault. I'm in this situation. Or like, this is my dad's fault. I'm in this situation. And a lot of guilt and shame narratives. We would definitely be exploring her strengths and using that to help enrich a positive narrative for her and helping those parts that are her coping skills and her strength breaks parts, really being able to shine and come out to help her. And again, facilitating that reauthoring, using a lot of external languages, kind of looking at what's that primary narrative? What are the exceptions to this narrative? And how can we create a narrative within yourself that you kind of get to be the hero of your story and not just the sidekick. And then the last kind of step moving into our therapeutic process would be like, how do we extend the story into the future? How can we circulate this story that when you go and be with your friends or a new romantic partner, you don't feel like you're kind of stuck back into that role you were 19 and a half ish years ago and identifying rituals and traditions that can help support this new narrative that she would have developed at the time throughout all of this looking at you know why she has these sleepwalking disturbances when did they start did they start before the mom's death or after the mom's death i would not be surprised if they started after mom died working on those trigger reactions and seeing what else trauma wise that might still be triggering giving her freedom to explore the trauma and kind of switch from a post traumatic stress though she doesn't quite qualify for all of the criteria for post traumatic stress disorder given what we do know about her, but again, into a post-traumatic growth narrative. So that's kind of my perspective on things. One thing I do like about taking an internal family system and narrative approach is they really get to use the freedom to write their own stories and be that expert because they know themselves and their story the best. And I'm just there to kind of help them facilitate that reauthoring of it and Mm -hmm. that management of your parts to work with you instead of against you. There you go. So I have a question for you at the end of all this. So this is because I know what you do as a therapist. I know that you do animal-assisted therapy. Yes. Uh, with a beautiful therapy dog named Eclipse. <laughs> I'm curious if this is a client where, at least in the relationship-building phase, if you think that would be appropriate to have Eclipse in the room with her. I would honestly want to build a relationship with her first as okay. a therapist, only because I have a feeling that she will... Re- kind of going into the career path she does, she relies on animals a lot. And a lot of her narrative and identity has been built around this ability to connect with animals really well. So I would at first want a couple weeks to have a relationship of us being able to trust each other and that like you can trust me in the room. And then as we get more diving deep into the trauma narrative part of therapy, because the first couple of weeks, we're just creating that safe space, right? Mm-hmm. For her to even tell a story, to tell her grief narrative, to tell her trauma narrative. And when we start to actually do the work of the trauma part, I would start to bring in some animal assisted therapy because it might ease the trigger reaction of the memories, the emotions. Mm-hmm. Cause what's great about narrative and internal family systems is you can tell your trauma narrative without saying I was kidnapped by a death eater held in a prison with a wand maker. And these things happened to me. You can say like, there's a part of me who's still really scared. A part of me who can't really be in small confined rooms. A part of me who worries that I'm just going to lose everyone again. And I don't need to know what happened. I just want to know what those parts are saying and how they come out in situations. But I have found that sometimes it's a lot easier to mitigate the emotions because sometimes that part comes out so strong and saying, do not tell my story. It is not safe because I will just fall apart. But when you bring in a fluffy little puppy, (laughs) 
things like, oh, it's safe now. I have someone I can pet and someone who will actually not run out of the room when you hear my story. Because I feel like that's something clients always struggle with in therapy is, well, damn, if I tell my story, will they run? And she has a very heavy story to tell. And that could send someone out like, what? You were at the Battle of Hogwarts. You saw Voldemort. You saw your friend's Lupin and Tonks die. You are at the first battle where you saw Sirius Black die. Even going back further, she saw her mother die. Yep, exactly. Because we learned that with the Thestrals, that she's seen somebody die. Mm -hmm. That's the whole reason she can see them. You know, so often I find that when Eclipse is in the room, they're no longer talking to me. They're talking to the dog. And it's crazy what Eclipse will tell them. Like, (laughs) Eclipse is so good at saying things nowadays. Like... I was just working with a client earlier and I was like, Eclipse really struggles with this sometimes. And this is how they deal with it. (laughs) Eclipse, you know, has to communicate their needs differently to me. Eclipse can't tell me, hey, I'm scared of lightning and thunder. But a part of her just gets really scared and goes into the trash can and throws all the trash all over the place. But it's not a very good coping skill because she just gets in trouble afterwards. What do you think is a way Eclipse could cope better in using that language? What's fun about even Eclipse's story arc and Luna's story arc kind of being the misfit Ravenclaw, where the Ravenclaws have such a stereotypical high standard for excellence, I would say, of like academically and being kind of that pristine. We're, we're a little arrogant. I think we can, I can own that Ravenclaws can have some arrogance yeah um as a Hufflepuff sometimes they can hurt feelings because you know we're smart too (laughs) (laughs) but she's not the classic Ravenclaw I think that's one thing that's really cool about the Harry Potter series when it comes to like what we know about these archetypes and what the characters represent in the archetype is very different and Mm -hmm. allowing us to say like I can be a very wise and her logic comes from being illogical and because of that she is so brilliant She's the creative, free-thinking side, yeah. Uh, which is why she's my favorite Ravenclaw. Other question being, what about this character speaks to you? I have always had a heart for the the sidekick females. I have always felt very like the sidekick female in my own friend group. So I love the fact that like she is a very young and wise, quirky girl who really owns being quirky and unique and really not caring what other people think about her but I think that becomes such a defense mechanism where she doesn't then let friends in like she's very surprised when she hears Harry say that we're friends she's like oh okay there's not like an emotional attachment to it so I love I love her independency I love her quirkiness and then again like I said I I have a heart to the the sidekick females especially the ones who are a little different like Ginny is a great sidekick female but in her own right she is a part of the main she's up there like She's strong. She's a sports player. She can kick ass. She gets the main guy. Like, <laughs> but I, I like I like Luna for that, and I like what she represents in the fact that she does have such a beautifully strong story arc. You can be a hero and be different, especially given the the time frame that she came out with and kind of what the other people have really connected her as. She does have a strong emotional tie to individuals who are on the spectrum. That is such a beautiful role that you can you can deal with issues that are related to being on the spectrum and be that Ravenclaw and be a very strong character in your own right and not kind of made fun of in the stories but it's it's a very beautifully written way of sharing that message. Rad. 
Thank you for sharing. No, thank you as well. And thank you to all of our listeners for uh, diving into this Harry Potter experience with us. We both had a lot of fun being able to research these characters that are so near and dear to our hearts. And we hope, that, we hope that you had a good time listening. Please stay tuned for our next one as we start to dive into the Marvel Universe with the Iron Man franchise. And we're going to be picking two of our near and dear characters from there and doing what we do best, being over psychoanalyzing therapy so but you know be kind to yourself Uh, don't let the muggles get you down and we will hopefully see you around next time take care see you next time and thank you to purple planet music for our theme song phoenix rising you can find music for all your podcasting or youtube needs at www.purple-planet.com